just want to see what you do, that's all. It's not easy up there, you know. I'll manage. I had a cousin in the Boy Scouts. Welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we hop on our bikes and take a ride through the valley of Amblin' Entertainment. I'm Andrew Godian, and joining me is my co-host, the Rotherham rascal himself, <laughs> Josh Glenn. How are you, Josh? I've never heard I you call me the Rotherham rascal before. No, I like I, that. I really thought I'd, I'd throw it in and not like not give you any heads up and just see what sort of reaction I would get. Yes, it's one of glee. Thank you for that. I like I'm nicknames. Glad. <laughs> Any nickname is welcome. Uh, I'm well, thank you, man. I'm well. Uh, as well as one can be given recent developments, I suppose, mm. which uh, we probably ought to mention. Um, this will be coming out the Sunday following Christmas, right? The 27th. Yeah, yeah. It's the 20th uh, as we record right now. And the intention is. is certainly to have it out that day after Boxing Day. So, And like you say, recent developments have made everyone's christmas plans a bit more um shall we say uh very up in the air and just throwing everyone for a bit of a loop yes. in a year that's done done too much of that already <laughs> <laughs> it has indeed um yeah so i think we just want to say we hope that you did all have as good a christmas as you possibly could yeah and that you made the most of whatever situation you found yourselves in and uh yeah we hope you also watched a lot of movies which is always a always a way for me to go when things feel a little tough. <laughs> distraction is, is key in moments such as these, and we hope that you're able to find some kind of pleasant distraction to make this year seem a little bit less unpleasant. Uh, and yeah. we're also, we're here with you. We feel we feel the pain. We feel this pain. And uh, wish you the very, very best. Hopefully, we'll find some way of remedying this next year. Yeah, exactly. And this is uh, our first episode proper i would say mm-hmm. really uh our last episode we uh looked over steven spielberg's short film that kind of gave amblin its name and this week we are turning our gaze to the very first film that came out under the amblin entertainment banner which is michael apted's 19- 1981 continental divide now joshua glenn What's yes. Continental Divide about? <laughs> well, hold on to your hats because this is going to be a ride. Uh, so Continental Divide is about a newspaper reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times called Ernie Suchak, played by John Belushi. Uh, now, his, uh, his function in the paper is to write a column exposing corrupt city hall politics. Uh, he's doing an expose on some shady land dealings um, run by this corrupt alderman, um, and he is assaulted by two crooked police officers who was sent by this alderman to rough him up and dissuade him from digging any further regarding dirt. He finds himself in hospital. He wakes up with a lit cigarette in his mouth, which is a detail that I quite enjoyed. 
and his newspaper editor advises him to get out of Dodge while he can because it's dangerous doing what he does with uh, this many um, corrupt institutions after him. So for whatever reason, Suchek's editor advises that he travels to the Rockies to interview this reclusive doctor, Dr. Nell Porter, who's been conducting research on American bald eagles for several years. Now, I, I may well have missed something, Andy, in the film that explains why he was... Why? Because it's such a specific thing to send him towards. Did, what, what, where did this come from? Did you catch that? His editor's just very keen to get him out yeah. of Chicago. Why? Yeah. So, so off he goes. Why not go and talk to <laughs> this person over there? So off he goes. He's taken up the mountain by uh, a local hiking guide, and it's clear that he's out of his element. Uh, he's taken up, he's attacked by bears on the way there. The bears steal his cigarettes and destroy his booze, uh, forcing him to essentially be teetotal for the time, for the duration of his stay. Uh, he's then dropped on the doorstep of uh, Dr. Nell Porter's shack, uh, which is, 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 is a little bit... I don't quite know how thought through this plan was, because obviously she was given no warning as to his arrival, and he is left at the doorstep by this hiking guide, and he has to just assume and hope that she's going to let him in and uh, be okay with his presence there. Of course, at first, she's not. She's, as Andrew said, she's not a fan of reporters. At one point in the film, she says that publicity is trite and cynical, uh, which is very much her starting position when he mm -hmm. approaches. Uh, so she's reluctant to let him stay, but then she realizes he's a bit of a babe in the woods, unable to survive the mountains without her guide. Uh, her guidance, uh, so she decides to let him stay and to recoup and, um, you know, try and not die. So she begins taking him on her walks around the area, scouting for bald eagles, uh, and their, their sort of differences and approaches are made very, very clear. She is she's very much in her element. He is a bumbling silly billy out of his element. Uh, but after a while, they figure out a way to learn to respect each other. You could say they begin to tame each other. Mm. <laughs> I really like the tagline for this movie that I saw when I was logging it on Letterboxd. <laughs> the tagline reads, When they met, they heard bells. And that was just round one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, that works. That makes sense because it gets to a point yeah, where... Yeah, it does work. They start to overcome their differences and they start to fall in love. And you think, oh, there's like an hour left of this movie still. What is going to happen? <laughs> and then a lot of weird stuff happens. Um, she, she has an on-off uh, like sex buddy relationship with this former All-American football <laughs> player who has decided to give up his life in the city for the role. He's called the possum for some reason. I don't, I don't yeah, know what well, that means. The film frames him as like he's a native of the land. Yeah. And it just turns out he's this white athlete. Again, we, we will build into more of how strange this is a bit more as we talk into our thoughts on the film. But there's yeah, there's a lot of strange deviations in this. But I think in essence, it does go for it, aims for a screwball element whilst also mm -hmm. having this kind of. Um, the, um, the man versus like the individual versus <laughs> the man uh the press taking it to corruption and yeah yeah uh city politics that um yeah they 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 sit together kind of easily i suppose but um like i say we'll, we'll we will dive yeah. into that as we go into our general thoughts on it but it, <laughs> it was a 
as the film for the starting point of Amblin, um, to kind of start off with how it all fits in, uh, Spielberg exec produced this mm-hmm. um, as, I think, a favour to Lawrence Kasdan, who is the screenwriter on it. Yeah. Uh, who he himself was just coming off of contributing to the screenplay for a little film by the name of The Empire Strikes Back uh, in 1980. And Spielberg, I think, initially was meant to direct this as well as um, bring it to bring it to being. But mm-hmm. after um, concentrating on Raiders of the Lost Ark instead, which Kazdan did also contrib- contribute to the screenplay for. Off the strength um, of this. Yes. <laughs> Spielberg was quite taken with this script. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a whole beat in this film as well that is also in Raiders of the Lost Art, which is yes, very strange. Yes, yes. You noticed well. that too? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to this, I'm sure, down the line. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm so pleased to notice that. Yeah. Um, and so with Spielberg not directing it and Spielberg uh, trying to get, did try to get Kazdan to direct it, but Kazdan started to direct Body Heat in the same year hmm. in 1981. He made that his debut. Which came out instead. three weeks before this. Yeah, that they're it's a weird pairing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not not necessarily from who I'd expect them to be from the same screenwriter, but they no. <laughs> <laughs> So uh in lieu of uh, Spielberg not directing it or Kazdan not being that interested in directing this particular screenplay of his, the reins were given to Michael Apted, who at the time was just coming off of Coal Miner's Daughter, which mm-hmm. it's not a film I've seen, but I know it won City Space like a Oscar. It's a biopic about a, a country singer uh, by the name of Loretta Lynn. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that had quite a significant splash upon its release. I, I think along with SpaceX when it also had about seven or seven other nominations so uh, it's clearly, like, I imagine Apted was someone that people were quite keen to tap and to get involved in the project. So, uh, And this is his first film after that success mm-hmm. as well. And um, But I think the real kind of interest, particularly for us coming into it, is how it represents, what it represents in the short but very significant career of one John Belushi. Yes, sir. And um, what? How familiar were you with Belushi before kind of coming into this? Well, I really not not much. I like 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 many a, a sort of um, a pretentious first year student at the Freshers' Fair at our university. I bought a Blues Brothers poster, which adorned my wall for the duration <laughs> yeah, the, of my time is, there. I remember that. Do you remember yeah, that? And then it's st- it always shocks me when you like because I know um, you'd never seen Blues Brothers, no, and it's no. still shocks. Whenever I, I... <laughs> it was it was very much a first year posturing thing that, that I kept up for three the, the, the three year duration. But no, I'd, I'd seen Animal House ba- back when I was a young total film reader, and I was first in the mid noughties sort of first getting into the classic films. I was ticking them off my list. I watched Animal House and didn't quite get it then. I was a bit too young, and also. It's not. A, I don't think it's a film that particularly transplants from generation to generation that well. Mm. Um, but that's all I've seen him in. So, in in preparation for this, I did watch a few of the sort of tentpole Belushi films just to get a, yeah. a grip on what his screen persona was, so I could understand more what this film is doing for him. Um, but he's definitely, obviously, he's someone that I knew of, and the, the tragedy of his, you know, his death is 
very much entrenched, I think, in, uh, in, in the lore of the time. And I think also, yeah. much like yourself, I had read Nick DeSemlin's book, Wild and Crazy Guys, earlier in the year, which does uh, discuss at great length the, the initial SNL props um, taking on of Hollywood in the late 70s and early 80s. An excellent book. Uh, if, if you haven't yeah, read it, definitely. we strongly uh, recommend giving that a read. That was uh, that was my Christmas present last year, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly enlivened. Remember the first lockdown when everyone was quite optimistic about the whole thing? It certainly enlivened that chapter of the mm. year. Um, but yeah, that's my relationship really with Belushi. H- how about yourself? Did you know much of him beforehand? Um, so, yeah, I had seen... Uh, the key ones, like you say, Blues Brothers yeah. and uh, um, Animal House, 1941 as well, his first collaboration with oh, Spielberg. we can talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and then kind of like prep for this, myself, there's, I noticed like really good timing for our part. Yeah, um, yeah. A Sky, a Sky documentary came out <laughs> on Belushi. I was like, oh, okay, I'll give this a look. <laughs> Uh, so if you do want to see it, it's just called Belushi and it is mm-hmm. on Sky Documentaries. It, and that gave, because I'd known bits and pieces about his kind of career from Nick's book and also from the likes of uh, Futile and Stupid Gesture, the um, yes. Netflix film that went into the beginnings of National Lampoon. Yeah. Because um, before SNL, uh, Belushi's kind of rise into the comedy scene started out as a lot of these guys did um, in Second City, which if you're not familiar with, Second City is the name given to the kind of like comedy scene in Chicago, which is where Belushi went to college and where he first met the likes of Hal Ramis and started mm-hmm. doing a lot of comedy bits with those guys. And even from then, like people would say, um, he's the sort of person that he just had to kind of walk on a stage and people would laugh. Uh, so from and even like this documentary goes into his whole kind of high school career as well, where he was a like a promising footballer, football star in high really? school. And I that didn't all, know that. yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but he was also really into dramatics at school. Yeah. And uh, his high school sweetheart, who he did end up marrying uh, Judy Belushi, and um, she she talks at great lengths in these in this documentary about how even then he was like a guy everyone liked yeah. and like just had a big energy about yeah. him that a lot of people could i know they say this a lot about famous people but they you could tell that he was someone who was gonna go on and do something yeah yeah quite significant and um so yeah so like he, he out of chicago a load of those guys moved to new york in the 70s and a lot of them got their first kind of start with national lampoon mm-hmm. um which again if you're not too familiar it was the the basic sale for the national lampoon magazine was mad magazine but for adults so it ha- have all these kind of like irreverent satire yeah. spoof takes on on uh news stories and guides and it would yeah very much an anti-establishment uh magazine that was kind of again like rallying up against the status quo and just trying not to take anything very seriously at all in the doc he describes himself as a disciplined anarchist which i i think kind of like does say a lot for the kind of routine that he did but this is where like kind of even then that that started that lampoon scene is when things do there's always like a darkness yeah kind of even in his lighter movies there's a kind of kind of darkness underneath it all which sadly does often breed really good comedy um 
and that's like as i'm sure a lot of you who are aware of belushi know he had a quite notorious drug habit that did start particularly around yeah. the lampoon and snl days where you you do hear so many stories about just how much how much drugs was just going through those stages and like you hear stories of him doing doing lines off the desk of Lorne Michaels, the producer of SNL, when, whenever he go home, they'd all just like ramshackle his office and just like let loose. So it was a SNL sounds like a moment that both like allows him to emerge as like the big comedy star, but also yeah. is the kind of starting point of breaking him as well. Cause it, it's this sky the mid seventies to late seventies, particularly after Chevy Chase leaves Saturday Night Live. Yeah, becomes this kind of power void that Belushi ends up filling and does just like completely rocket from there. And it's amongst all that. So around, I want to say, I've got it in my notes here. Yeah, 79 is when he's really off because he's just had the biggest comedy mm -hmm. of all time with Animal House, uh, which is a film that cost three million. Just... And I think it made about... Yeah, it's just shy of 3 million, 2.8. It made wow. 141 million. <laughs> so it's one of the most profitable films of all time. Yeah, because what, that's like half a that billion in today's money? Just over half a billion? Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Animal House for a little bit? Yeah, because that is like the, like we say, he's in SNL, he's the number one star on that, yeah. of which is like at that point the number one show in the country and animal house is the film that really yeah. rockets him out into <laughs> the performer that he does kind of end up getting i would say he almost end, ends up getting stuck with most a certain definitely. image yeah because of animal i feel like what, what you're saying about his his unique energy that unpredictable bundle of i think it's almost equatable to jack black i think he's the closest approximation we have now yeah it's that that's yeah. a, that was a thought I kept having a lot during the when yeah. I was watching that documentary, and particularly seeing a lot of the raw stuff yeah. that he was doing. Yeah. Is, there is a raw power and raw energy there. I, I think those early films do try to bottle that and try to capture that on screen somehow. And Animal House, with <laughs> with his character of Bluto, he is just uh, this this sort of flatulent force of, of of sort of destructive, horny energy that. that blows into the movie and destroys everything inside. Oh, God. <laughs> so the film is very much... I, I made it... I, when I watched the film, my notes were pretty much just um, an inventory of everything he did on screen. So he's introduced pissing into a bush, and then we see him... Eat... <laughs> uh, is that the... When the freshers are walking yeah. in, trying to figure out if they've got the yeah. right party. <laughs> it's this grotty Delta House party, and we see him urinating into a bush, he then strolls into the party and knocks a tray out of a guy's hand with one hand and catches a flying beer with another hand. And he just in the movie he just tends to walk around farting and burping, breaking things, looking up girls' skirts, uh, climbing ladders. I mean, I think the most there are sort of the two most yeah. iconic moments in the film that often are used as a header image for Belushi's career. There's the one where he's in a dining hall and he's just walking around collecting food off people's plates and you know, again, breaking things and just making these noises. And he sits at a table with the um, with the, the boys and girls from, is it Alpha House? The uppity old money mm -hmm. house. And he, he says, uh, here, I'll do an impression for you. And he shoves loads of food in his mouth, puffs out his cheeks, and then uses his two fists to punch his cheeks 
and spray food of everyone and says, I miss it. Get it? That, that's, <laughs> that's the one. And the second one is when he gets a ladder outside of the sorority house, climbs up to the window to watch them undressing and pillow fighting. And he turns to camera and he, he looks straight down the lens and he, he arches his eyebrows as if to say, ain't I a stinker? So he's got a... <laughs> I kept thinking he has got a bugs. It's, it's a kind of yeah. It's kind of there's hor- a Looney Tune yeah. element to it. <laughs> it's horny but also sexless. It's really strange. It's this <laughs> destructive sort of this weird little sexual power that he's got, um, and it comes out mm. in these destructive, flatulent ways. And yeah, it is kind of an R-rated Bugs Bunny routine that he's doing. I think, and that, that was my takeaway from that film. There's that one, also that one scene where he at the end when they're kicked out of Delta House. And he is depleted on energy, and someone chucks him a bottle of Jack Daniels, and he downs it like his Popeye um, drinking a can of spinach. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that, that's a very telling moment, I think, in that film. But yeah, it's kind of like substance fueled mm-hmm. um, mayhem, but yeah. in a way that you are being encouraged to kind of point and laugh at or yeah. Get, yeah. get an enjoyment from that does run through so, particularly some of his other stuff but he does try break out from it quite a, a bit which does yes end up leading leading into a path that ends up onto continental divide but before he kind of gets into that he does have 1941 yeah, the year see. after animal house in 79 yeah baby and uh again that's him doing the bluto thing but in a very yeah different context but... <laughs> it's amazing how he's still burpy he's still walking around just smashing things and spitting on things and but he's just... an ace fighter pilot in world an... war Two. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ace kind of an ace also slightly incompetent fighter pilot accidental ace, <laughs> yeah, accidental ace. and again it's, it's a mostly non-verbal performance right it's just a lot of grunts and a lot of yeah <laughs> um yeah uh it's a weird one, isn't it? I, I you, yeah. you'd seen nineteen forty one before, hadn't you? I had, and it was. I think it's probably my least favorite Spielberg, just because. And yeah. I, I think you said this to me after you'd seen it. You were just like it's a film that tries very hard to be funny, yeah, without really understanding how. Yeah. You just let this cast of very <laughs> funny people, for the most part, because yeah. it is like a bit of a cherry picked. SNL, yeah. the SNL stars of that style because Aykroyd's also in there. Yeah, and uh, it, yeah, it just feels like someone trying to craft the uh, kind of Chuck, again a Chuck Jones level. Yeah, yeah, Looney Tunes mayhem, and not really realizing how those mechanics should work. No, despite the fact that there are moments in there that when they end up relying more on spectacle for the for the sake of just being scale and being um something other than a gag trying to happen it does mm-hmm. tend to be it can be more effective but yeah. yeah it's a it's a film that's trying that doesn't really understand how to be funny i think i completely <laughs> agree and, and the weird the weirdest thing is I, I think a lot of spielberg's 70s and 80s blockbusters they have an implicit easygoing humor in there and he, he's so good at creating that this this sense of real life on screen. Like I think about Jaws and Close Encounters. They're really funny movies, but it's more behavioural, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like he, he creates the environment to allow people to feel organic yeah. and to allow for these moments to feel real. As soon as he begins to try and construct a movie around quote unquote gags, like you say, he just doesn't under, he doesn't understand how to 
translate the elements that he's got into moments that produce laughs and it's still it's really strange yeah and I, you got you got to have these like he's coming off straight off of jaws and uh, close encounters at that point so you, you've got to you got to have a there must have been a moment where mm-hmm. it was Definitely. largely overconfidence Definitely. talking and then re- <laughs> realizing like okay I'm the, yeah i'm the new yeah. kid on the block i'm not that untouchable i can still kind of yeah this is maybe not, <laughs> most definitely a and there are like you say, there are some great yeah. i think belushi is part of the best bit of the film which is that air raid in the middle over los angeles which is genuinely a yeah. really thrilling set piece and belushi is crucial to that yeah some oh some, some good miniatures, miniatures love a miniature yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but the real like even before and just before going into content- yeah. Continental Divide, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about how the Blues Brothers mm-hmm. is the kind of the quintessential Belushi um, taking this project that him and Dan Aykroyd initially set up as just the, yeah. a house band to have at SNL and filling it with like genuinely talented musicians to the point where they end up with a number one album on the <laughs> Billboard charts <laughs> and uh, go on to make which for me is still like one of the best comedies of all time yeah. with uh, the Blues oh, Brothers. Man. I love the Blues Brothers. And I'm I so glad you finally watched it. Seen I, I've, I've, I've had the DVD <laughs> because, you know, Andy and I are those people that still do invest in physical media. I've had the DVD for about uh, about 10 years now and I finally watched it in preparation for this. And my God, I, I genuinely feel like if I... And Spielberg's and Spielberg's in it, in it yeah. <laughs> Landis is in it as well. I won't speak about that as much. But I do feel like if I'd have seen that film maybe five, ten years ago, by now it would be my favourite film, I think. It has so much in it. But it's just... It's such a weird... It's a mishmash of uh, it's a, a musical hall review show, a jukebox musical, a demolition derby. It's so many things. But when you see them on screen, these things that are so disparate and you think, how are they together? They just seem so natural. And you think, of course this works. Of course yeah. it does. It's just marching to the beat of its own drum. And um, I think part of that, it, it's really good at creating its own mythology. Like I, I noted down the opening stretch when you see him released from prison, you don't see his face until the title card. So at the very, very beginning, you see him laying face down mm-hmm. on his bed in the prison cell. Then you see him, this, this is, this is um, Belushi's character, Jake. You see him face down on bed in the prison cell. You see him trapped from behind in the halls. Uh, you see the the inventory of, of his effects being given to him as he's coming out. Before you see his face, you've got a broken watch, an unused condom, a used condom, black boots, a belt, a jacket, pants, hat, sunglasses, $23.07 in cash. And then he even comes out of prison in silhouette, backlit from behind. And you don't see his face until that close-up title card, you know, John Belushi as yeah. Jake, um, uh, Joe, Joe she Field? caught the Katie Blues just comes in. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's such Bow a, now. it's a movie, it's one of those movies that is just creating its own iconography as it goes and it's so juicy and delectable. I absolutely mm. loved it. It was fantastic. And it, watching the doc uh, again did kind of re- reveal this element of darkness to it that I like would maybe have always suspected but never yeah. quite had confirmed that he was like this was at a point where he was particularly at a bad point with his addictions where it had developed from cocaine and was involving heroin at this point and there are points in in that film even though i do think he's mostly present there Mm -hmm. are a couple of moments where he might feel a little distant and not quite 
quite there and that is like one of the leads to this moment just before he goes into continental divide where he does have this kind of last moment of really Mm -hmm. looking at himself and being like okay i need to change change a few things up a bit and uh he go he did go on this big sober um regime just before going into continental divide where he hired a bodyguard who used to work for nixon to stay with him like 24 7 and him and his wife and this bodyguard who i believe uh was called Smokey, uh, <laughs> took took off to took off to a house in martha's vineyard and just stayed there the whole summer and got got clean he didn't he didn't do any drugs at all and that was wow. which led into this moment in time where the script for continent continental divide comes around mm-hmm. and has this narrative of this guy um ha- removing himself from a dangerous environment and going somewhere where he can get clean and can yeah and is basically forced to change change his lifestyle um and yeah and it also is a movie that allows him to not have to play bluto again so yeah looking at this moment in his life and in his time where he is going like has this desire for this kind of rehabilitation mm-hmm. uh, the the appeal for him as an actor to just like so so shines through i think yeah when you when you understand this context which and it makes it even even sadder when you hear the stories of his next film that he did I, we should say that continental divide was his uh penultimate film before his death his final film neighbors uh which came out uh the, the year after continental divide um or it might even yeah start of 82 uh neighbors came out um and that was just a film that the the environment on the set was just toxic apparently and the drugs were coming back in and that smokey had left him by this point and he was nervous about leaving having smokey leave him and he did just completely relapse and leading to his death from an overdose in march of 82 only like two months after neighbors came out and was like savaged by critics and made only like 20 million at the box office so it it, like it's it makes continental divide even though it's one of these films that i would say neither of us had really heard about beyond uh mentioning like we say nick's book and uh maybe a passing glance over uh the filmography of john belushi but now like we've really kind of like properly taken a look at it and we do it's so easy to see this huge significance that it would have had for him in his life at the time that it was being made and like i said it does just make the whole thing a bit more tragic it really does it really really does um so before we get stuck into the the meat of this film because i i I don't know about you but Mm. i I, (laughs) there's a lot to talk about with this film like yeah it it even makes the film more frustrating because it's just there's yeah, and we will we will dive into this, but it's yeah. uh, it's a film where that meta narrative does do a lot of heavy lifting mm-hmm. for it. I think. <laughs> um, but before we get into all that, Andy, what did you think of Continental Divide? Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like like I say that there's there is that meta narrative to it where yeah. it is his character um, being taken out of an environment that is dangerous for him and being forced to 
rehabilitate and mm -hmm. um it does have i thought the middle section where it's them them two and his big ego facing up against yeah. uh blair brown's uh nell who has like little to no ego yeah whatsoever yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um all that I thought was lovely. The two of them are really solid together as well. Yeah. They kind of there's a sense that like behind the scenes as well, you get the sense that they uh, clearly respect each other and mm -hmm. are like reacting to each other in a way that doesn't feel that forced or it feels like they're mm -hmm. they are actually growing to like each other within that space. Yeah. Um, for me, it's everything else around it that just doesn't work. <laughs> nice. Like we say, there's this whole element of uh, kind of a city conspiracy on a kind of like city council government level that is left so kind of vague, <laughs> but also seems to have such massive it's... and devastating consequences at points that I'm like, what the hell? It's like a, <laughs> it's like a dippy palooka film, isn't it? It's yeah. so, so peculiar. I mean, there, there are there are some funny ideas, I think, in that pseudo con a paranoid conspiracy thriller moment. Like there's, there's quite an interesting bit when he's walking down the street and these two muggers hold him up with a knife. And I really like that. Yeah, bit, yeah. <laughs> it's a good bit. And these two muggers, they, 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 as they're holding him up, they realise who he is and he's a journalist who does an awful lot for more impoverished areas. And they say, oh yeah, we, we, we like your work, we respect what you do. We're really sorry yeah. about this, but we're still going to mug you. <laughs> and then he, he's, he's asking about uh, acquaintances of theirs, he's asking about the local area, how everything's doing, is it's happening. And they're almost apologetic when they're robbing him yeah, and, sorry, and, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and as they run away the police are coming and he says it's okay i'll, I'll hold them off for you and uh, so they, they, they give him back the watch that they stole yeah. from him oh, so he like, can time it <laughs> buy us some time yeah how can i tell the time i don't have a watch <laughs> and then immediately after that you have so you have the, these muggers that are framed in a light easy going way and literally the reverse shot of that is these two police officers who are faceless and Again, backlit. Remove their badges. Remove their badges. <laughs> and the, the juxtapos juxtaposition of these sort of comical, easygoing, understandable muggers and the threatening, faceless bureaucracy of the cops. That was, I think, that's one of the most interesting yeah, things that filmed us stylistically. And then, that, yeah, and that's the, moment, that's the thing that kickstarts the, the plot proper, really, because it, it is a weird little mishmash of this yeah. Hawksian uh, screwball romp and uh, a conspiracy thriller. Yeah, I, I, I say thriller, it, not thriller, really. No, yeah. it's <laughs> drama. Uh, bit. <laughs> there's like this whole, but even the vibe from the off, even in that kind of first segment, is strangely kind of comical, mm -hmm. but has again this weird element of quite like a dark systematic problem going on. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. in the city of Chicago. That it, I did find it really funny that he's just going around and like everybody from the <laughs> yeah. newspaper stand vendor to the cabbies to the hookers on the street yeah. know who he is. Hey, Ernie, we loved your piece today. <laughs> what? I, I just loved like the, and then it cuts to like a city councilman just going, the son of a bitch is damn it again. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It's very strange that the celebrity associated with this guy, that he 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 is threatened. Yeah, it threatened so much that he has to leave for his own his own safety. Um, yeah. One one thing that became apparent. So after the mugging happened, after the police beat him up, he wakes up in hospital with the cigarette in his mouth, as I mentioned previously, which is a detail that I do like. 
I, I saw that that image plus the kind of the, the relatively quick paced um, pitter patter of his dialogue. I thought oh, he's doing a kind of Spencer Tracy thing with this role. And yeah. then I did a little bit of Googling and I saw that, that Larry Kaz, uh, Kazdan, when he was writing it, he was trying to emulate a 1930s uh, Tra- um, Tracy Hepburn comedy. And I think mm. knowing that going up, sort of watching it towards the start of the film really helps understand what it's trying it to do. Help. And as you're watching it and you notice that it's not quite working, you're able to better piece together why that is. And mm. that... You can, if you imagine it in Academy Ratio in black and white, with a little bit less breathing space between the lines, you can see it working really well. I think it, it, it's not a stretch to imagine that film having been made in the forties with, with very little actually mm. being changed, aside from maybe a, a tighter direction. Because I think for all the film's faults, there is something in the screenplay. The central conceit of the screenplay does kind of work, and the two performances. I think that Belushi. Does a, a quite a good Spencer Tracy bit. I think he's quite yeah. he's quite good at the kind of there are some good, nicely polished, hard boiled lines in the film, and he delivers them very well. And I think his his physical presence and his viability as a romantic lead is quite convincing, right? Did, did yeah, I I, well? I was definitely convinced by it. Like like I say, the I think that kind of intention for a Tracy and Hepburn thing really does shine through in that middle yeah. section of the film where it is just kind of focusing on the two of them yeah uh getting to know each other and breaking down the initial frictions and i think even blair brown like i did read that blair brown was even eventually cast because of her likeness to hepburn that makes and, a lot of sense because she does yeah. look remarkably like <laughs> she does her, look yeah. like <laughs> and uh yeah and yeah she has that kind of same um tough mm-hmm. exterior which does initially that does get more um worn away as it goes along and they end up developing more of a genuine romantic feeling for each other but the i do think it it, that appeal does clearly shine through and his him being a romantic lead isn't as kind of like strange an idea as you think it would be after coming off of the back of Mm. the likes of animal house and like it's a film that actually feels like it's really trying hard to give him that space to really stretch something that he hasn't been able to stretch before. And, and you're, and you're right. There's so many good lines. Like there's one I really like that kind of plays on that Tracy and Hepburn um, back and forth where she's, where they're about to go out to look at some, uh, a spot where she's got, where she knows to find some bald eagles where she's just like, it's not easy up there, you know? And he's like, I'll be all right. I had a cousin who was in the boy scouts. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that rhymes, there are, yeah. There, there are yeah, some rhymes there's... with that line throughout the film as well. It comes back a little exactly. bit. Exactly. And there's not, there's really nice little moments like yeah. that. That, um, Despite the fact, like, initially their kind of, like, attraction and their relationship developing does, there is initially a slight creepy sense to it because yeah. he it does just feel like he's pushing it because he's bored yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. i think even that aspect of things does have an interesting um meta level to it because he some of yeah. his behavior does emulate that bluto um like almost entitlement when it comes to the the fairer sex like um his initial moves are he's reading something over her shoulder and he leans in and starts sniffing her neck and she goes 
please, please don't do that. No, please don't do that. And then later on, he tries to kiss her again, and she goes, no, I've told you not to do that. And there's a point mm-hmm. when they're in the tent that they go camping later on, and they're in a tent together, and they, they yeah. start to kiss, and she is, uh, um, she is consensual with the kiss. Then he kind of rolls on top of her and tries to start you know, taking his clothes off, and she's fighting him off. And it's an uncomfortable note. Um, and, I mean, thankfully, he, he does listen to her, so nothing worse yeah. happens. But that, that, the attitude that he has and the way that it's dealt with narratively does feel like a kind of meta rebuttal to the Pluto image, that, the, sorry, the Bluto image that he's got from Animal House and his previous on-screen persona. And it does, there, there's a lot of talk in the film when he's going on these walks with her and she's talking about how, how one has to understand the pursuit of their conquest. She's talking about the, um, the eagles, but then the under the subtext is she's telling him how to best pursue her. And she's got, he's got to understand her if he wants any chance of wooing her. Mm. But to me, it did feel, even though that is what she's saying, she's kind of implying that he has got to tame her. It does feel like she is taming him ultimately. Cause she is the, she is the one who mm-hmm. has more of a, an effect on his behavior than he has on her behavior. Yeah, I I would agree with that because he he is ultimately the one who ends up changing Mm -hmm. and has his priorities changing quite a bit as well. Yeah, um, that that's not before there's just this strange, (laughs) (laughs) strange old shit. It is (laughs) strange. Yeah, it's not comfortable to watch a lot of the early courtship scenes. Yeah, and like it all kind of starts going a little downhill as it moves into its third act, I would yeah. say. Um, initially, like, there's some stra- strange broad elements of um, kind of Florence Nightingale yeah. syndrome that come ah. in where he, he um, it's, t- it's not just one event, it's two events. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a part where they're up in the mountains and he has one hell of a tumble. <laughs> it's a real nasty fall, isn't it? Yeah. It for a while. And, um, <laughs> but like, I, I was uh, introduced to a survival technique, which I'm going to try and remember. Should I ever find myself up in the Rockies and rolling down a hill where she makes this stretcher out of binding all of all these ropes together and then pours water on them so that they freeze and hold the structure. And I was just like, whoa. My God. That, my, my, note, my note for that moment, what I wrote down was, really good sled. She's so impressive. <laughs> there's so many moments where she is so impressive. She's there's so impressive. Moment, there's a moment earlier as well where um, they hear a gunshot and she's like, oh no. Yeah. And he's like, what? And uh, she runs down and these two guys who have shotguns trying to shoot bald eagles and she just goes to town yeah. she like smashes up their shotguns yeah. and like i was just like yeah she's badass she's, she's, like, great. <laughs> she's great yeah and she, she's always taking away the phallic imagery of the men she, she's the one with a stick and she uses the stick to initially intimidate him when he breaks into her house and she destroys the these extended phallic symbols that are these shotguns from these poachers and it is there's they, they mention it in the narrative that she is the one who she's the breadwinner. She goes out and she does the the hunting mm. in the house, and he is the one who cooks and cleans in the home. So there is that kind of purposeful, quote unquote, inver, inver, in, inverting of um, of gender roles stereotypically. Yeah. But then there is a bit more, like you say, that she 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 does have the big phallic stick, and she does an awful lot of the sort of uh, <laughs> metaphorical castrating of of these men. Which <laughs> comes across. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, 
I don't quite understand why the film felt the need that, like, because, like I say, there's that point where he tumbles, and then not long after that, he gets <laughs> absolutely mauled by a mountain lion. <laughs> but one thing I did like, one little note that I did like is that um, after he, because the scene cuts away while the mountain lion's in there, because he, she's gone out to do mm. her business, he stays in the house to recover from his injury. Uh, and as soon as she goes, this this mountain lion walks in the front door, and he tries to give it a a, a big cut of steak that was steak on the table. Yeah, big cartoonish stuff. Yeah, piece of it's steak. not it's, <laughs> it's not interested in the steak. It wants him, and it shows the mountain lion approaching him, and then it cuts to her coming back to the house uh, and seeing. I definitely thought they'd kill them off for us. Yeah, just <laughs> do a, a sort of a fake out of him being dead, but then it shows that he's just been slightly. Um, wounded by this thing and then what he says is i took your advice i did what you said and i tried to understand what it wanted and uh you know that, that's how i defeated it so i do quite like that he admits that he managed to survive because he took her advice you know he's, he's mm-hmm. not too stubborn to admit that that was a decent and, beat yeah and then it, it is that beat that then leads into their kind of complete walls falling down but yeah. then also yeah. the moment where they really kind of like embrace each other affectionately for like really the first proper moment that doesn't just feel like it's just kind of two people flirting and the part where it really feel is exactly the same beat from <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark where um Marion's uh Marion and Indy are on the boat and Marion's going like uh, well Marion hits him with the mirror and he's like that hurt and she was like where did it hurt and he's like here and she kisses him there and then where else does it hurt here and so on so forth but that exact that exact exchange is here (laughs) and i was just like come on man you released these movies in the same year people are gonna it's such a particular predilection because he wrote the script a few years before though didn't he I think yeah, Spielberg. Yeah, so he must have just had that detail that he really liked from the Continental Divide like, script. Um... And was like, put that in here. <laughs> What's that producer called? Who there's that famous Kevin Smith story about how when he was writing the Superman film in the late nineties. Oh, John Peters. Yeah, John Peters was obsessed with getting having Superman fight this giant metallic spider in the film, <laughs> and then Kevin the, the project fell through. Um, there was no spider. There was no film in the end. And then Kevin Smith said he went to the cinema the next year to watch this new film, Wild Wild West. And the final set piece in the film is them taking on a giant metal spider. So it's kind of like, this is Larry Kazdan's version of a giant metal spider, is the weird Florence Nightingale. (laughs) May I just say, I'm I'm amazed it only took us till the second episode for you to find a way to work in Wild Wild West. (laughs) Yeah, I watched uh, watched that as part of my uh, lockdown mania. I watched Wild Wild West again recently. And I would never say that it's a particularly successful film, but I certainly found more to appreciate watching it again this there time. There you go. The John Peters Metal Spider notwithstanding. Absolutely. There's some cool bits in that film. It's weird. I, I'll, I'll take your word for it. It's been oh, a little while. I, just like, I think, not to go on an old man yells at a cloud kind of rant, but there's so much safety, so much built-in safety to temple films these days that I do appreciate looking back to watch yeah. how weird blockbusters used to be. Yeah, which actually fittingly kind of makes quite a good segue into how weird this final act is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, one of my most recurring notes in the final act is, what's the end game here? Like, what is this building towards? Yeah. So, so we should say, and you know, we're, we're going into detail on the on yeah. this movie yeah. now. Um, so 
Well, I hope, we hope you watched it beforehand, but you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's a particularly essential watch, would you? No, no, and and like all this is general broad plot element yeah, anyway. Yeah. It's not. Um, there's a shift in the final third where he, after they've kind of really realized that they like each other, um, he goes back to Chicago, and the film suddenly takes a shift back into being about this the presses versus corrupt government officials again and it there's a like there's a real kind of offhanded darkness to it all where you learn off screen that his informant that he had at the start who had a little kid has been killed and it's like it, it's played off in such like a blasé way and it's just like hold up <laughs> you made a what you made a point what are they doing? Yeah, you made a point of showing us this guy's what? kid <laughs> yeah, and we don't know exactly what the kind of like real evil doings that this, these government officials are really actually like behind. It's never made super clear cut. There's a doings as, that transpire. Like, and like his apartment gets bombed as well, and it leads to this whole montage of like lots of spinning newspapers and different headlines as he yeah. really takes the fight to them. Yeah, and um, it does then shift again when uh, it becomes apparent. And that she's going to be in New York, uh, not Ch- New York, sorry, Chicago, and they're going to reconnect. Uh, uh, and he, his editor doesn't want him to reconnect with her during this time because he thinks it will be bad for yeah. the kind of uh, streak he's on that in a minute. But um, And again, that's a nicer touch to the final act where, uh, again, their playful energy with each other is charming enough to kind of yeah. smooth over the cracks but like it's such a weirdly like harebrained um <laughs> final act that, that really makes the whole thing that was proving to be like quite a sweet and smooth yeah yeah um ode to the hepburn and tracy stuff that it ends up being that slightly confused as to exactly what the film wanted you to take away yeah. from it which yeah it's a shame like it really does undermine some of the strengths of it, it. it's we- it's really weird because the- something that we've talked a lot about how her character is so free-spirited and she's so resistant to his attempts to, you know, tame her. I keep doing air quotes that you can't see. Um, this is a podcast. I can see him. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, one thing I felt like was in, in the in the scenes just before their courtship, she does not give a shit about being in the kind of film that he is in. She, she's got her own thing going mm. on. She doesn't, she doesn't really want to be part of, you know, the film that John Belushi comes from. And that kind of thing does continue, even in his later scenes, as they rekindle their relationship. And I've got to say, when she turns up again in Chicago doing a lecture, you, you've had about 15 minutes of her not being on screen. It's so nice to see her again. I, 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 I'd really missed her. Well, as I was saying, you have this weird thing of where you kind of, you, you like her so much, you like their chemistry, but you know that he's a city boy, she's a, uh, a mountain girl. You like them both. You like Can their I relationship. Any more but... <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if their if their relationship is going to continue, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, it predates the Avril Lavigne. Maybe the Avril Lavigne song was inspired by this dynamic. But for the relationship to work, one of them will have to abandon their very nature. Mm. So you kind of think, how? Where is this? How can this satisfactorily? wrap up this tryst. Uh, what were you going to say? I, don't, I was going to say that it 
that reunion is one of the mm-hmm. nicer scenes as well, yes. where um, he goes to a lecture of hers, yeah. and they have this really uh, like double entendre back and forth conversation about the mating habits of yes. bald eagles. Yeah, and again, it typifies the strengths of it of yeah. it being that kind of same rat a tat tat dialogue that um, yeah epitomizes the kind of screwball nature that yeah is going for. And it, again, it's like such a sweet, natural charm between the two of them, um, which makes it all the all the more of a shame when the film does kind of almost go for too easy an answer at the end to a point where you are just slightly left on an awkward footing, wondering if this is really <laughs> the best place to leave it or what, what <laughs> has actually kind of been decided. It's, it's not yeah. a whole satisfying ending. So like a very broad swing that it does to make it satisfying. <laughs> and there is this weird thing where there's about three instances of the two of them having these these passionate kisses, and then one of them says, it just isn't going to work, we must go our separate ways. And then they turn and walk away, and the music swells. The music, by the way, the, the main theme of this film reminded me of the theme from Mahogany. Did you get that? <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring this up. So yeah, and, and the amount of times that they have these these passionate embraces, then they say this isn't going to work, and they start to walk away, and the theme from Mahogany starts playing, and then John Belushi turns around and runs back and says, "Hey, wait, I got an idea. Let's do this." That happens about three times to the point where it kind of becomes like um, there's a joke in you know the David Wayne film they came together. Have you ever seen that with with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler? <laughs> yes, I love that movie. There's, there's, there's a, a <laughs> bit when Paul, late late in the film, such a good movie. Late in the film, Paul Rudd is at his brother's house, and he he his brother gives him some advice, and he turns and he walks away. Then when he gets to the door, he says, "Hey," and he does this sort of this poignant callback to his brother, and that moment is repeated over and over and over and over again until it becomes ridiculous. And this this beat in this film being used so many times felt like an extended David yeah. Wayne bit, and, and it, it's. You think the film is wrapped, but then you realise there's 15 more minutes left, and it does the same thing again, but in a different context. And then you think it's wrapped, and then you've got eight minutes left. It does the same thing again, and the, the theme from Mahogany comes back. And it's so such a strange, emotionally stunted conclusion, isn't it? It is. And it, it, like I say, it's the, it, it is just a shame that, like again, their relationship is the kind of most... Uh, intriguing and kind of charming element about it that ends up being kind of overplayed to a point in in this back and forth that you're talking about to to an essence where you kind of feel like you you are the film itself kind of loses its own sense of heart and place um which is a shame because there there is a lot to there is a lot to like in um his performance which really plays into his natural charisma in a way that um isn't relying on a pratfall i think there's maybe like two pratfalls in total over the whole thing (laughs) and yeah just i wish it was slightly stronger than it than it is because there are a lot of elements to really take away from it and appreciate particularly in the as we say the wider scheme of his filmography this feels like the one of the only chances that he really got to demonstrate a real leading man side yeah, to himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 
in a way that in a way that is much more sincere and earnest which i believe is actually his real yeah. name in this right yeah yeah <laughs> he's, he's he's literally earnest um, yeah it is and it does have that appeal to it and for anybody who i think has any passing interest in the kind of looming yeah. figure that is john belushi in generally just comedy as as, as a whole should, does does need to seek this out to kind of see a side to him that I, you can only wonder that we would have seen more of. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's very much a sliding doors situation where for the, the the version of events that we got in real life was was very tragic, and this wasn't the the sort of hail mary pass that his his sort of life and career needed. But there is an alternate universe mm-hmm. scenario in which this was a huge success, and this did set him on to be the yeah, kind of Spencer that's Tracy such a good point. 80s, you know. It's really, it's really sad. What if this had made like Animal House money? Yeah, what would yeah. happen? Because <laughs> he was good, and I think the older I certainly get, the more I realise that thirty-three is, is a very, very young Such age. Such a young age. To be, yeah, and Such um, a young age. And also, and thi- you can clearly see, yeah, in yeah. the in the course of this movie that he gets physically better as yeah, well you can you, you can see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you can feel it the, the the energy it's a very very different energy than he's had in previous films but yeah it's a very successful energy that he's got it, it, he manages to sort of channel his raw power somehow into something that's a bit more i mean this is by far his most verbal performance isn't it <laughs> this is this is the yeah. most he speaks <laughs> to any of his films um but for such a, a looming figure, especially uh, particularly in the comedy landscape, he made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films in his life. In his far too short life. Yeah, it's mad, really. Yeah, and I guess it's you have to appreciate the volume of the SNL stuff that was really yeah. coming out yeah. during his heyday as well. Yeah. But you're right; he does hold such a. It's just a testament to the kind of brand or talent that he had that he can have this what is a very compact contained body of work within the space of about eight years but if not shorter maybe even like seven or six years that is just so um influential Mm -hmm. to a lot of people coming out today that it hard like hard and fast is like the the only way you can really describe belushi's career i would say Definitely. hard and fast <laughs> hard and fast and um yeah, yeah. I, I have some tasty trivia tidbits yeah like. <laughs> please, please feed me those tasty trivia tidbits andrew so th- this was a weird one but like reading into the fact like this film was loosely we talked about how it's loosely inspired by some screwball uh elements as well as uh you know, well, the screwballs of hepburn and tracy but it's also was inspired by a real-life journalist as well who had a similar uh, tact to his approach in um, calling out city council members in Chicago during the 70s. Uh, and this was a commonist for also the Chicago um, Sun-Times as well. So they, they really kind of stuck oh, to wow. his so DNA. And only very lightly his, Yeah. His name was uh, Mike Royko. And um, he was, again, a really liked public figure during this kind of period where he was exposing um corruption at a kind of city government level but he when you read a bit more into his later life as a journalist it, it's quite like uh-oh <laughs> yeah he, he 
ended up becoming a increasingly conservative, homophobic and outlandish reporter that um, was just just basically went from being this kind of like likable man of the people to a shock col- colonist that people just didn't really pay much heed to by the time that uh, uh, he ended up, uh, he died in 97, but by that point in his career, he was so far away from the kind of man of the people figure that this film clearly looked at him as during this time which i thought was a very weird thing to learn yeah (laughs) yeah like a less successful william randolph hearst yes (laughs) and another bit that i found quite interesting in terms of like the logistics of this film is i i don't know if you saw this but um we should say the film malaji takes place uh particularly in the middle in this little shack that nails built up in the colorado mountains Mm. And um, they built this whole set in an actual on an actual mountainside, um, but they didn't realize just quite how, um, particularly at the start of production, how Belushi's health was, and they had mm. built it at such an altitude that the um, uh, <laughs> air, air was so thin he had to keep being revived with oxygen, like every other take, because Jesus. and they'd built it too high, but and it, it was like even to the point where it was affecting other crew members it was just it was just too damn high <laughs> <laughs> so they had oh, to do this whole thing where they had to completely dismount the set from where they had initially built it built it lower down the mountain and then once they had done that um loads of snow came in that made the set unusable <laughs> so then they had to take it all apart again and rebuild it in a sound stage <laughs> <laughs> good god but uh, so. apparently, like the whole film itself has the these um, both the actual Colorado set, yeah, and the soundstage spliced together. <laughs> and I, 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 I personally couldn't tell. No, no, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell either. Yeah, they, 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 they um, hid those seams well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, one of my one of my favorite little trivia bits that I found as well was this is one of the first films that has a little. THX 1138 reference in it which if you're not familiar with um, filmmakers that kind of came out around the same time in the 70s so Spielberg and George Lucas and the brats the like yeah all started kind of like having little references to each other's movies in their movies and one of the ones that's kind of remained key and has like appeared in like even to the point where it's in like Pixar movies and other and Brad Bird movies um they keep dropping in 1138 as a reference to George Lucas's first film. And this is apparently one of the first cases of 1138 cropping up in the background somewhere. Uh, apparently it can be seen on a taxi um, that the camera lingers on for a beat too much, beat too long as uh, Belushi is leaving a train station. Um, it's not something I picked up as well. So I, I did kind no. of like go back into it after I, after I read that, I was like, really? Why in this one? <laughs> well, that speaks to Spielberg's intentionality. You know, it, it's um, an inauspicious beginning to the Amblin uh, stable, but I suppose Spielberg was taking this claim, but I'm there. This is, I'm, yeah. I'm in control now. I'm making the films I want to make, and I'm going to uh, homage the filmmakers I like and respect in those films. And like, Bring it all back to Spielberg and Amblin 
he's working as an executive producer on this one but i'm i do wonder do you think that like the kind of hepburn and tracy element would have been maybe better played if he had directed it do you reckon that kind of i i, I don't know would have been? we have said when to when discussing 1940 we have said that spielberg is not very good at doing outright comedies so I wonder mm. if he would have been able, maybe on a technical level, he would have been able to make the t- the scenes tighter because the scenes do need tightening up a little bit, I think, is one of the issues. I don't know if he would particularly be the right guy to do it. No. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure, man. I'm really not sure if he would have been but able to. I guess to... you do get that kind of Hepburn and Tracy vibe, even from Harrison Ford and, and Karen Allen and Raises a Lost Star to a degree. That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. Granted, it helps that they have exactly the same scene to work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, may, maybe, maybe, but uh, that's not the world we live in. In the world we live in, it was Mr. No. Apted who, uh, who himself he has had a strange career. Yeah, I mean, like, went on to do a Bond movie. <laughs> and he was also um, uh, crucial in the, the Seven and Up. Uh, 14 and up, 21 and up. You know those films, the documentary series yes. that checks in on, on subjects every seven years. I think they're currently on 63. Are they, are yes, they? I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, so that he's, he's I guess, more accomplished as a, a documentarian in that sense than he is. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think what else he would have done after this. Uh, Gorillas in the Mist wouldn't have been too long after, but that's later in the 80s. Yeah. You would have done that. Uh, the world's not enough in '99. Which for a while was my favourite Bond film back when I hadn't seen many films. Um, <laughs> he did one of the Narnias as well, didn't oh, he? He did. Voyage <laughs> of the Dawn Trader. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, and if I remember correctly, you also did a. And this is just the the other side to myself that believe it or not, beyond being a film nerd, I also like football. <laughs> <laughs> I, that about you. I remember he did. He did a documentary about the uh, 2006 FIFA World Cup that I think Pierce Brosnan narrated. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, that stayed in my head. <laughs> so, uh, to to summarise, um, maybe not the most indicative of Amblin films to begin with, but no, it's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. it just doesn't really feel it, like we talked about this kind of Amblin vibe in the first episode yeah. of it being this kind of. Uh, tales of wonder or like nostalgic warmth yeah. and and this is one that just doesn't seem to kind of really fit no, into that no um categorization of them but it is the start it is <laughs> and, and the most telling thing was a quote uh, a point that i would seen was spielberg had said uh, when he read the script by Lawrence kasdan was that he really wanted to make a love story and he was really taken with this script doing so much so that he kept kasdan on to do uh, a raiders rewrite um, so mm-hmm. th- th- this this is more, I think, Spielberg using his newfound power to make the kind of film that he wanted to see, uh, and in that sense, it's quite indicative of Amblin to a point. It's it's a kind of it's a, a blank check that he wrote himself to steal a term from another podcast. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Alrighty, so I think unless you have any other stray observations about Continental Divide, I think we can wrap this one up. No, no, you know I, I have no regrets watching this. It's uh, it, no, it was a I'm fine time. It. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A strange time, but uh, a lot to appreciate in this. Like definitely. you say, particularly if you're in, into into Belushi or uh, 
any any of that kind of yeah. crop. Uh, it does it does speak a lot to what could have been, which I think is the main point of interest for it. Um, our next episode on Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast will be taking a look at Toby Hopper's Poltergeist, um, which uh, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into because yeah. this is there's. If you're unfamiliar, there is always been this urban myth around it, whether it was really Toby Hopper, Hopper that directed it, or if Spielberg himself had a bit more of a hand to play. Mm. So I'm sure we'll tuck into all of that when we when we come to it. Um, if you do want to watch the film ahead of time, um, it is available on, to rent and buy on Chile, Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Sky Store, YouTube, Microsoft Store, and Rakuten TV. <laughs> so pretty much everywhere. <laughs> it's not a hard one to stumble across. I have this one on Blu-ray myself, so I'll give that a spin. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do give us a like, a review, and a subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And while you're at it, please do follow us on Twitter at Ramblin Amblin. That is R-A-M-B-L-I-N A-M-B-L-I-N and while you're doing so, if you've got any thoughts at all, any opinions, any feelings towards Poltergeist, I know many of you have. I say you because I still haven't seen it for my sins. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people have uh, grown up with this film, so please do tweet your thoughts at us at Ramblin' Amblin' and we'll share them on the podcast. Um, if you want to email us, Andrew, please tell the good folks at home our yeah. email address. You can email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. One more time, that's ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Our DMs are also open if you just want to, you know, give us uh, any any comments of encouragement. Don't be mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. oh, good, good, good feedback only, please. Yeah, and yeah, just share, share your love and love or hate for these movies that we've got coming up, and we, we'll definitely try to read as many of them out as we can. We don't want to spread um, vitriol, though. You know, if, if, if you've yeah. got anything bad to say, <laughs> say so in a constructive manner. You know, we're, I think we're, we're, a, uh, we're a wholesome podcast. We're a, a couple yeah. of wholesome boys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think just the last thing to say, really, it's like we're coming into you at the Christmas period. And as we said at the top, we know times are a bit tough, but we really do hope you've managed to make the most of it. And this will be our last episode before 2021 as well. So yeah. I think just end off with saying happy new year and let, let's all really club together and hope that it's going to be much better than the last 12 months. As a, as a great songwriter once said, let's hope it's a good one without any fear. There you go. Uh, yeah. We really do wish you all the yeah. best because uh, it, it is tough and just, just know that like, just reach out to anybody mm-hmm. should you feel should you feel you need to chat to and like yeah people are there for you communication <laughs> is key talk 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 so yeah it's very important and uh, uh and thank you josh i love you and i miss you i love you too <laughs> I miss you. i'm so grateful we have this uh to look forward to i mean after the news yesterday yeah. i definitely doubled down on my appreciation for having this podcast so yes yeah. because uh as I'm sure many of you who are listening to this um, can agree, talking about movies is just a great part. That's what we'll be doing anyway, so we might as well put a microphone before our faces and get our thoughts mm-hmm. down and share them with the world forever. 
exactly and we hope you get a bit of enjoyment out of it too <laughs> but andy all the best my friend love you very much yeah until next time everybody take care much love and we'll see you next time for our episode on poltergeist